0: Oh, hi, I'm Phil and I, I live in the Northern Rivers, I live in East Lismore. What, what identifies me is that, that I'm a father, I'm a partner, I'm a friend, I'm a grandfather and I work with men who uh, cause harm and I work to support them to be safe and respectful and to live up to being the best men they can be and I'm really passionate about that and I'm a recovering drug addict and I've been clean for 21 years And I'm proud of that. That's an achievement. And uh, I don't like mowing lawns.
1: This is To Be A Man, a podcast that explores the experience of masculinity through the lens of different people. I'm Gemma, and I recorded this episode with Phil on Bundjalung Country in northern New South Wales. I'd like to offer my respects to the rightful owners of the lands on which I live and work and acknowledge that sovereignty has never been ceded. Just a heads up, this episode contains discussions of domestic and family violence, drug use and the use of homophobic slurs and explicit language.
0: The opinions I express in this podcast are my own opinions um, gained through 25 years of being involved with men's behaviour change work and working with men face-to-face and in group over that time. They're, they're not necessarily representative of the organisations or individuals that I might name on this podcast. And when I say uh, I'm talking about men, I also want to make it clear that I'm speaking specifically about men who I have worked with and the, the men who uh, are attending the men's behaviour change programs that I've been running and involved with over that time.
1: I am in the home office of Phil Jones in Lismore. How do you identify your gender?
0: Uh, are you asking me I identify as male? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Identify as male.
1: What do you use this space for?
0: So I use this space to interview men, and interview is not quite the right word, to work with men um, around supporting them to change their behaviour. I also run trainings for an organisation called ECAV, and I supervise people who uh, work in this sector.
1: So when a man comes to you wanting to change his behaviour, what state is he usually in?
0: So the men that I work with are usually having some sort of sense... Uh, I have a colleague who calls it a handprint in their back, which means somebody's pushing them to come and get some help. So sometimes men that I work with are referred by DCJ. Sometimes men have reached a place in their life where their partners have said, I don't want to be with you anymore because I'm intimidated or I don't, you know, whatever. Um, and so they come to see me to try and get some help to work through that. But they're, they're, men don't turn up here and say, I'm a perpetrator of domestic violence and I need some help.
1: How long does it take for them to get to that stage where they are owning their behaviour in that way?
0: A few sessions, I would say, is the average. See, the idea of being a perpetrator of domestic violence is massively stigmatised. So they're a bunch of bad people, is the stigma that's attached. And so blokes aren't aren't kind of acknowledging that's who they are. Mm. Blokes aren't acknowledging they're bad people. What all of their behaviours sit within for them is a justification that the justification is valid for them. They honestly believe that. So we have this disconnect between someone's aspirational self and what they're actually doing. And we also have a disconnect between intention and impact. The men that I work with, I ask them the question, if if she says you're intimidating and you don't think you're trying to be intimidating, who's right? And so his response is often, well, I'm right because I'm not trying to be intimidating.
1: That's a really interesting one because so often when people get called out for any sort of bad behavior, they will stress that that wasn't their intention to cause that harm. Yeah. So are you saying that a few in a few sessions men will get to the point where they can realize accountability? But how long does it take for them to actually change their behavior? <laughs>
0: So embedded change, I believe, takes at least a couple of years. Okay. And, and, and I'll just play around with maths for a minute. Mm-hmm. So I've got, a man might come and see me for an hour a week. So it's 168 hours in a week. So for 167 hours of a week, he's actually influenced by all the things that gave him permission to be abusive in the first place. Mm, fully. And so he comes and spends, spends an hour with me, and sometimes he might go into a group, we put him in a group, that's two and a half hours a week. So, you know, 10 10 groups is 25 hours. So so the expectation we can put someone into a 20 week group and they'll change their behavior. I think, you know, that's kind of laughable. 20 weeks is 50 hours.
1: Is it structured in that way because of a lack of government funding? Like, why is it only 20 weeks?
0: It's structured in that way because of a total lack of understanding about the whole deal. Mm. The drivers for the idea of men's behavior change aren't men. Okay. Mm. The drivers are the people who are impacted. So we could call people who are impacted by domestic violence, lots of things. So let's, we could start with saying victim survivors. We could say the oppressed. There's lots of ways we could do that. Okay. But, but I think if you, if you think about the, the majority of the sector is driven by this idea that the oppressed have said, well, fuck this, it's not okay. We're not going to put up with this, and why should we? And, and I agree wholeheartedly, why should we? But what, what hasn't happened? And I, I thought about this after we spoke last time. This was really important, you know. You taught me something amazing.
1: I'm just going to interrupt for a second there to explain what it is that I taught Phil. I told him what I love most about being a woman, the sisterhood. The fact that I can find solidarity, safety, and intimacy with practically any woman I turn to. I can unpack my feelings and my troubles with my mum, with my girlfriends, with my grandmother, with my hairdresser, even with the woman in the toilet cubicle next to me who I asked for a tampon. Then when I asked Phil what he liked most about being a man, he didn't really have an equivalent answer.
0: When you asked me about what I, what I like about being a man, what, what that indicated, that little piece of conversation, not that question, but that, that piece of conversation indicated something really clear to me. Generally, women have a support network. The sisterhood, you called it, mm. which is really important. So we don't have the brotherhood. Mm. We don't have the equivalent brotherhood. We can't. I can't go to a male friend and say, oh, I'm really vulnerable today. I feel really kind of freaked out and I'm not coping very well. And, and can we just, you know, can you just offer me some support? That, that's not available to us.
1: Mm. That's such a stark contrast to my own experience. Like having gone through a breakup recently, I didn't even have to ask. Women came over and scrubbed up my cupboards and cooked me meals and sat with me in the bath and cuddled me in bed. And it's been like a month maybe and I still haven't spent a single night alone. Amazing. Yeah, but it's just so unfair that men don't get access to that level of support. Well, not unfair, I guess, because it's like self-imposed, but...
0: Well, yeah, see, I suppose that's debatable. Mm. I don't know if it's Mm, self-imposed. I think it's one of the outcomes of being on the top of a pyramid of hierarchy. If we do a hierarchical drawing... Mm-hmm. So we always do it as a triangle. The top point of the triangle is the hierarchy, the peak of the hierarchy. But that's a point. There's only one person there. You come down to the bottom, the oppressed, it's the, it's the wide point of the triangle. The oppressed have support, in a sense, which is kind of really weird. So, so if if we run a family from a hierarchical point of view, so the man is at the top of that hierarchy, his expectation and demand is that his partner be the equivalent of the sisterhood for him. Mm. And the issue that happens, of course, is that that can't work. It's not possible. But he doesn't have a system in place that tells him that's not going to work, mate.
1: Particularly given that a lot of the things that men might want to or need to unpack would be about their relationship and they can't necessarily do that with their partner because they're in a relationship with them so any tension in there can reach boiling point so much quicker
0: exactly and there's not a a, a place to kind of reach out to support for support Mm. like i I was thinking about i've I've heard this a lot over the years it's not like a man can go to the pub and play a game of pool with his friends and talk about while he's leaning over playing i feel so kind of frightened and anxious today. I'm so vulnerable and, and I don't really know how to manage things at home. And, you know, I'm really kind of struggling with my expectations aren't being met and I'm not even sure what my expectations are. Someone will belt him over the head with a pool cue.
1: Wild, because I could <laughs> say that to any friend and they would receive yeah, it.
0: And, that, and that's, I think that's been, that's why that was really, really useful for me when you said that, when you explained that. Because what, what this opens for me the best description that I have for it is to, to, to talk about Jess Hill and the, the podcast that she made. There's a woman who's, who's being abused. The man's doing this kind of flipping between this kind of satanic death metal singing voice where he's really being horrible and abusive and awful to the woman and then back to kind of, why are you freaking out? Why are you worried? What are you so scared about? What's happening to you? I mean, why? I'm not frightening. And, and he's not necessarily saying those words, but that's in his tone. And the woman is petrified. And that's clear. It's obvious. And so after that's played on the podcast, Jess interviews a woman named Maggie Woodhead. And Maggie says, we need to understand that for that man, what's happening is that his internal experience is he's getting smaller and smaller, more and more frightened and more and more desperate. But his external experience, which is his behavior, is become, he's becoming bigger and bigger and he's getting more and more frightening and more and more dangerous. And so those are, I see those as interlinking circles like a Venn diagram. And I wanna talk about it as though they're a top left, a top right and a, and a bottom circle. So the top left is his inner experience. The top right is his external behavior and the bottom circle is the impact of that. If we can, if we can understand that from the impacted point of view, it's not reasonable to expect the impacted person, group of people, services, all of that, to be taking into consideration what's going on in the top left-hand circle. It's actually what's, what's reasonable is to look at the top right-hand circle and go, this is the behavior that's impacting me, and those are the two things that exist. So in, in kind of essence, what that means is the top left-hand circle almost disappears. And you know, some people are very compassionate and loving and caring and all of that sort of thing, so they are trying to think what's happening for him. But predominantly when someone's yelling at you, calling you names, threatening you with physical violence, using physical violence, coercively controlling you, doing all of those things, you're not thinking, oh, wow, what's his context? Who gives a shit? He's wounding me. That's what matters. And, and so if we understand that that top left-hand circle's disappeared for people who are impacted and who are working with people who are impacted, our sector has grown out of that space, so where the top left hand circle kind of doesn't exist. If you think about a man's experience, and this is really sad, I'm not agreeing with it, I don't think it's right, I'm not condoning it. I'm saying this is the unfortunate reality.
1: Oh, absolutely, it, I've witnessed it multiple times. It is the unfortunate reality.
0: Yeah, for him, the only circle that really matters is the top left circle. And that's the bit that I think is really sad and I definitely don't agree with it and I don't think it's right, but I, but it's, it's just the reality. And so the work that I do is actually about being able to go into that top circle with him and draw him into a place where he sees and is in the intersection.
1: So would it go <coughs> that a man goes from only being able to see his own experience, yep. then he can see the behavior and then he can see the impact?
0: Yep. Yep. Okay.
1: I have a question, building from our discussion about brotherhood, mm. I'm assuming that You are often dealing with men who have never really spoken about their feelings before and would probably feel quite unsafe and scared to do so. How do you strike a balance between getting through to them and then not colluding with their behavior? Because I'm imagining that it would be a really precarious dance Mm. a lot of the time if you're trying to get a message across to someone who is like quite traditionally blokey. Mm.
0: It's a really good question. It's a really important question as well. And and I see it in terms of, of like a a spectrum or a continuum. So out on the right hand side, as far as I can kind of stretch my arm, is this idea of collusion. So, so collusion sits within a, a an attitude or a belief that this poor fella, you know, he's really impacted by patriarchy. The society we live in kind of teaches him to do this. And, and then he's with this woman who's really challenging and difficult and, you know, the poor bloke. No wonder he's abusive. So we call that collusion. That's not okay. That's going to make risk higher mm. if I, as a worker, have that attitude. Yep.
1: Because he could see you as reinforcing his behavior. Absolutely. Yeah.
0: Yeah, And that's what I, in, in effect, would be doing, even if it w- wasn't my intention, mm. if I hold that belief. So, so down the other end of the spectrum is the idea that he's an arsehole that he's just a fuckwit and, and really enjoys inflicting harm. And and there's no sort of context to his abuse. He's just a ratbag and I demonize him. And i put that into this little subject is, uh, I read this in a paper on domestic violence and shame. The first line of it was, perpetrators of domestic violence have long been seen as an undeserving client group. So down that end is that, you know, demonising, monsterising that sort of stuff. So that is coercive. That's a coercive, punitive kind of place. So at at either ends of this spectrum, we've got coercion at one end. And and if you think about coercion and the punitive kind of ideas, there's so much evidence, especially with working with children and stuff like that, how that actually increases risk as well. Mm. So we have these two ends of this spectrum that both increase risk. So, if we demonise him and we call him, you know, mate, your behaviour's fucked, you're an idiot, stop behaving like that. Mm. Then He's don't gonna
1: deserve our help.
0: He's going to go home and act that out. He's mm. going to feel more shame, he's going to feel more disenfranchised, he's going to feel more oppressed, regardless of whether we can see that he has a whole lot of privilege. If he can't get his head around that, and then he can't if we demonise him, he's going to go home and act that out. So she's at more risk as well, his family and his children and the whole deal. Same as if we say, yeah, of course, I'd be abusive too, mate. Yeah, your, your abuse is perfectly reasonable. That's collusion, the other end of the spectrum. Both of those increase risk. What we have in the sector is this very strong bent that we're terrified of collusion, but we haven't actually matured enough to be able to go, we need to be terrified of coercion as well. So the thing that fits in line with those two extremes is just this really simple thing that's been around for 100 years is, is the difference between aggression, passivity, and assertion. So if we're passive, we're probably sitting up at the collusive end. If we're being aggressive, we're probably down at the coercive end. In the middle is a curious collaborative space where we as workers can be assertive. Yeah. And so working with a man collaboratively is about actually understanding that top left-hand circle and being able to hold the space and an understanding that for him, And this is stuff that's controversial, it's tricky. People don't want to hear this, especially if they're in the impact circle. Mm. But for him, the only way to be able to support him to change is to collaborate with him around his context and then bring him into a place where he can start to see the dissonance and then start to really understand the impact. So that's the intersection of those three circles. But we have to know ourselves where we sit.
1: Mm.
0: If we don't know where we sit, and and so, you know, that's a, a kind of, it's challenging because the work requires us to actually put aside our sense of this guy's an arsehole. But it also requires us to put aside our sense of this poor bloke. Mm. You can't kind of do either. You have to sit in a place of like, yep, I'm going to offer you unconditional positive regard. Regardless of your behaviour, but what I'm not going to do is I'm not going to say your behaviour is okay. So I'm I'm going to say to you, as a person, I offer you unconditional positive regard, but your behaviour is shit.
1: Do you think that your message is received well? Because in addition to being a great practitioner, you also present as like a relatively blokey man. In that you are white, you look quite strong, you've got some tattoos. Like, would your work be different? Oh, sorry, you've got a gorgeous (laughs) moustache, a beard. You're great at driving. (laughs) Funny. Um, (laughs) Do you think you would be perceived differently by your clients if you presented a different version of masculinity to them?
0: I, I don't know how to answer that from the kind of standard position because I've not ever been anyone else. But I have experience of working with colleagues who are different. I've worked with lots of women. But I've worked with a couple of men who have said to me, you know, you've got this advantage. You're a blokey kind of bloke. I'm not. I'm not a blokey man. I'm actually quite effeminate. And I just want to be really careful saying that because, you know, masculinity is part of the problem and the way that we've developed and and kind of I don't know what the right words are for this, but the way that masculinity has kind of evolved, Mm -hmm. it's evolved into this thing that's one of the really big driving forces in men giving themselves permission to be abusive.
1: Mm. I mean, there can be so many different versions of masculinity, but the dominant hegemonic masculinity is that.
0: Nicely said. So, So the one man that I'm thinking of particularly used to say to me a lot, I can't engage men the way that you do. Mm. I can't, eng- I don't have the ability. Men don't sit and uh, immediately have respect for me. And so I have to do other work to develop that position where I can challenge men about their behaviors while still holding them in a space where they feel respected and safe and all of that sort of thing. Whereas I, for me, I, I kind of, it's a very fortunate position. It's why I'm good at this. Mm. That's one of the reasons. One it's, of the reasons. And it's, it's quite a powerful position. And I suppose what I've done, and there's always more to do, always more work to do. It's not unconscious. Right. So I, so I know about it, and I know that, that I have a choice. I can use it as power over, or I can use it as power with. What what the work requires is that we support men and invite them to a place where they can hold themselves accountable. True. We enforce accountability on someone. We're using power over them. Mm. Okay, and I'm a a men's behaviour change practitioner, so I'm not a punitive organisation. I'm not corrections and I'm not the police. What I have is an opportunity to invite someone into holding themselves accountable. So the easiest way to say it is I don't think it works to use power over someone to get them to stop using power over someone else.
1: How do you go applying that ability to connect with men to male friendships outside of work?
0: Oh, man. Did I read you that Bell Hooks?
1: You did, actually. You were looking for the quote. Do you have it on you? I've,
0: I've, I've put it somewhere more accessible. Okay, cool. <laughs> so, the first act of violence that patriarchy demands of males is not violence towards women. Instead, patriarchy demands of all males that they engage in acts of psychic self-mutilation, that they kill off the emotional parts of themselves If an individual is not successful in emotionally crippling himself, he can count on patriarchal man to enact rituals of power that will assault his self-esteem.
1: It's such a powerful quote. Is there a specific anecdote in your life that you can remember or reflect on that illustrates that quote where you tried to express emotion and were sort of forced to internalise it due to lack like social ramifications.
0: There's hundreds, but I can't bring them into my mind. But mm-hmm. what I can do is talk about these fellas that I have lunch with. So I, I've been having lunch with these two fellas for years. I absolutely adore them, but they politically aren't aligned with me. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's been challenging at times, there was a back and forth. No, not a back and forth. There was a one way traffic of what they, what one of them particularly sees as perfectly reasonable exchange of information. So he would send me pornographic photos and pornographic pictures through the phone. And I feel a bit embarrassed about it. So, you know, I was so so it, one of the things that was fairly common was something like Titty Thursday. Mm. So it would just be a hundred images that would come through on a reel mm. of women's breasts. Yeah, That's
1: such an interesting way to try and connect with a man, like because sex is so prized in patriarchy, like, oh, how do I connect with this guy? I'll send him through some porn. Mm.
0: Mm. And so I, I, I said, that's not okay. I don't want you to do that.
1: In a text or over lunch?
0: I've done it lots of times. True. So, so you know, we're not talking about a, a one-off kind of interaction that's respected. Mm. This is going back to bell hooks. Well, what the fuck's wrong with you, you goose?
1: Is that the response that you got?
0: That, well, that's part of it. True. As if, stop carrying on. What? If, who the fuck do you think you are? You know, like, really? What's going on? Have you turned into a puffer The way that men deal with each other is men emasculate men to put them down if a man challenges a man
1: yeah well it's gender policing right
0: yep absolutely so and, and 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 the thing that kind of when i ask men about it when i'm working with them we, i talk about what's the be, what's the way that we insult each other it takes them ages to actually come to oh we emasculated each other mm. yeah what we do is we say being a man is the most important thing and i'm going to say you're less of a man by comparing you to a woman Or comparing you to a gay man.
1: How do you feel when you get emasculated by another man?
0: Today, I feel sorry for him. And I um, don't have any qualms about who and what I am. It impacts me in the sense of of I feel like I need to do something about it. Not because I feel hurt or wounded or whatever, because I I don't want to live in that world anymore. Mm -hmm. I don't like that world. I don't like what that means.
1: Mm. You told me that you grew up in a home environment that wasn't really safe enough to really foster any proper ideas about gender. Mm. But then you did go to an all-boys school. What was that experience like for you?
0: So the outcome of that experience was that I stopped going midway through year eight. Oh, right. Because I hated it. I just could not stand it. And I I didn't know at the time. I wasn't conscious at the time of what was going on. It was oppressive. It was a mini version that was more safe, but it was a mini version of prison where you have the hierarchy of the toughest and everybody underneath gets picked on.
1: How did that environment teach you to see women and relate to women? Because there weren't really any around for you to be like just mates with on the playground.
0: Yeah, so that's a really good question because on one hand it didn't. It didn't teach me how to relate to women. It didn't teach me how to be with women. But what it did do was it reinforced that paradigm, if you like, or dominant kind of idea of women are for something. Mm. So you don't have friendships with women. You have relationships with women. And so that's been an ongoing thing for years in my life is trying to f- sort of figure out how to be friends with a woman without sexualizing that or without taking that into that space of she might be the one who provides me with the brotherhood.
1: Mm, fully. It's such, an, it's such an interesting one. I remember talking to one of my friends a few years ago about sexual coercion when you sleep in a bed with a female friend and he said that when he was in his early 20s, even if he didn't want to sleep with his female friend, He felt the pressure to at least try, because Mm. if he didn't, what would that look like? Mm. Mm. Um, Because, yeah, he hadn't been taught that you can relate to women in a non-sexual way.
0: Yeah. Sex is a weird thing for me. So it's it's not, I know it looks like it's about sex, but it's not been about sex for me. It's actually been about who will rescue me. Mm. Not someone I want to have sex with. I don't like to have, I can't imagine, my understanding, and it's only from an outsider's point of view, is that the current kind of culture is that people... Meet and have sex fairly quickly. I, it's just not something I'm capable of. I'm not interested in that. I don't want to do that. Sex is not safe for me. I need to feel really, really safe and know someone really well before I could engage with sex. That makes sense. And so <clears throat> I've always looked at women though through a, it's not a dissimilar lens, but it's a lens of maybe she's the one who can make me okay. Mm. And so what I have now is something new that you've provided me with, which I really appreciate, is an understanding of a different context for that. It's maybe she could be the one who could provide me with the brotherhood mm. that's parallel with the sisterhood that you talk about. Mm. And it's not, I don't even want that. It's not possible. Nobody can do that. I mean, I've been in a relationship with Di for many, many years. And and it's been awesome because she's really supported me to understand that she can't be the brotherhood for me. Mm. So I think, you know, what it taught me was, and, you know, this is a universal part of the work that I do with men all the time, is is to support men to understand that we're socialised to think we're superior to women. But at the same time, we're socialised to believe that it's women's roles to not ruffle our feathers, to not make life difficult for us, to not do anything that makes us uncomfortable.
1: It's so tough, and I feel like, I don't know, sometimes as... As a woman and as a feminist, we get told that we hate men. Mm. But, like, we love them. So many women are heterosexual and engage in heterosexual relationships and we love men and, like, Mm. actively try to fix them to the point where memes get made about, like, a woman sitting and watching the Joker movie and nudging her friend like, I could fix him. Mm. I feel like a lot of us can see, like, oh, wow, you are so incapable of managing your emotions and, Mm. like, that's why. Yeah.
0: Mm. So this is a question, this is a practice question that I ask the men that I work with when he starts talking about his own powerlessness. And he doesn't use those words because he hasn't identified it as that, but he he talks about his own victim status. So in the sector, we get the victim status when we say men come in with a victim status and that's fucked because they're not victims. We don't go, oh wow, what's happening? Why does a man think he's a victim? Why does he feel like he's a victim? How do we empower him in a way that's safe? How do we support him? Because it's valid for him. It's real for him, his victim status. It's not something he's made up so that he can continue being abusive because he loves being abusive. That's That's the impact circle's view on it. What it is, is it's actually his experience of life. His experience of life is that he feels like a victim. And then what he does is he reaches for power that's accessible and he makes someone else a victim so that he can feel like he's got some power. How do we empower someone who's privileged and who's using power over? Yeah. How do we even hold that in the same kind of paragraph? How do we hold that in a sector? How do we say this is actually someone who's disempowered to look after themselves, disempowered to emotionally deal with their life, disempowered to manage equity, Mm. disempowered to manage you not being the brotherhood?
1: Mm. What do you find most challenging about being a man? Now? Pressure. Pressure mm. from other men?
0: There's, there's, a, there's a lot of pressure in a lot of ways. I find a, I find that there's a lot of pressure and we don't have a support network that's, that's effective mm. as men. So I have a mortgage. I have teenage sons. I have adult sons. I have grandchildren. Uh, I have a lawn to mow. You know, I have a, a workshop area that is untidy. I have a house that I like to keep tidy. I have food to prepare. I I, I don't want to sound like a victim because I I don't feel even remotely like a victim, but I have a lot of pressure. I have no space where I give myself any permission whatsoever to use power over anyone inappropriately. Mm. So this is pressure. I'm raised in a world that tells me I can have a tantrum.
1: Yeah, and that's your outlet.
0: Yeah, and I can't. I won't. I don't. I have some really close male friends that I do and can lean on. I have quite a good support network, but I don't feel that it's accessible at all times. And my relationship's fantastic. My life's fantastic. But I have an emotional world that's that's really challenging, that's really difficult. I wake up most mornings feeling uncomfortable. I would have at least an hour every day where I think being on antidepressants would be a good idea. But the improvement in that's huge. Like, I felt like that all the time. And so, yeah, I I carry a lot of trauma and I I bring that into a world where I have a very high standard to live up to. Mm. Not just because of the work I do, because this is my ethical sort of place. You know, this is important to me. So for me, loving someone internally is a nice experience. It's all well and good. Loving someone externally is what matters. So actually being demonstrative in my love. So when I think about the work that I do, What men say to me is, I love this woman. But you call her this name, and you call her that name, and you call her the other name, and you raise your voice at her, and you punch holes in walls around the house around her, and you yell at her, and you put her down, and you tease her, and you're awful to her. That's not love. It's just that simple. That is not demonstrating your love. Mm. Demonstrating your love is saying, you are a really important person, and I will do everything in my power to treat you with respect, and to let you know that you're safe and you're cared about and you're loved. But what that means is, is this complete turnaround in my training. My training is that you'll look after me. And, and demonstrating my love means actually going, oh, you're not looking after me and I'm going to treat you beautifully.
1: Mm. And
0: going against something that's kind of intrinsic. Mm,
1: like air just deconditioning yourself in Yeah, a
0: way. yeah. And that's a lot of pressure. Mm. It's a lot of pressure just to go and mow the lawn. You know, keep the chooks alive.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Well, to counter that then, what do you enjoy about being a man?
0: You asked me this last time and it was was so confronting because I thought, wow, there's not a lot I love about Mm -hmm. being a man. And yet that's not true. I actually love my life, but I don't know whether it's about being a man. I was a heroin addict at 19, so the future wasn't bright. And what I look at now is I have this absolutely beautiful life. But what I don't have is an emotional world that that aligns with that, if that makes sense. So I don't wake up feeling like, oh, I have such a great life. I'm so grateful and life's awesome. I wake up going, oh fuck, there's a lot of things that I've got to get through today and I've got to manage and I've got to kind of be here for myself and gotta know how to do that and do that effectively. Yeah. So so what I love about life and and I and it's, and it's challenging Gemma all the time to be able to kind of put this into words in a way that still sits within what I believe is ethically okay. I'm really powerful and I really like that, but I know how to use that as power with. And it's really important for me to disseminate the skills and, and the, the things that I have, to disseminate this. This matters to me, so it's one of the things I love is that I'm powerful, I'm strong, I'm talented. I'm gregarious. So I'm also taught that we're not allowed to love those things about ourselves.
1: Well, like, I think it's quite beautiful to say that I love that I am able or in a position now where I use my powers for good.
0: Mm. Yeah, and it is. It's lovely and it makes me cry. Mm. It does. It's kind of really confronting in that way because, you know, when when I watch people loving, whether it's a TV show or something, you know, and someone is really demonstrating that love, it makes me cry. And, and what it touches in me is that that's my kind of ethical place. That's mm-hmm. what I try to do is I try to let my sons know how valued they are, how wanted. Nothing like what I experienced. Yeah. And so, yeah, it's really touching. Yeah. But I do. That's what I like. I like my power. And I like that I use it in a way that I think, and I'm open to correction, but I think is for good.
1: You've just listened to episode four of To Be A Man. If my conversation with Phil brought anything up for you, you can call Lifeline on 13 11 14 for suicide prevention services, mental health support and emotional assistance. 1-800-RESPECT on one 737 732 for counselling and support for people impacted by sexual assault and family and domestic violence. And Men's Line Australia on one 789 987 The incredible organisation Phil refers to in this conversation, the Men and Family Centre New South Wales, can be reached on 02 6622 6116.